Do you want to do recovery your way? Are you skipping steps because you don't like some of them? Can you let go of that control? Welcome to episode 105 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelle and Alice. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michelle and Alice, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Today we're going to talk about letting go of the process. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to this topic of letting go of the process. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is co-host Harriet. How are you today, Harriet? I'm doing well, thanks, Spencer. All right, and welcome back to the uh, virtual studio. (laughs) Thanks, it's good to be here. Harriet, you've chosen a reading. Yes, I chose the reading that is in Courage to Change, page 19, uh, January 19th. Today, I seek to become a little more accepting of myself, a little more comfortable in my own skin. Although it is important to recognize and admit my limitations and flaws, only my higher power can remove them. Condemning my imperfections has never enhanced my appreciation of life or helped me to love myself more. Perhaps today I can let go of all the condemnation for this one day. I will recognize that I am on a spiritual path of self-improvement. Every tiny step I take on that path moves me closer to wholeness, health, and serenity. If I become impatient with myself, I can examine my expectations. Perhaps I expect recovery to happen overnight. I will take time today to acknowledge my efforts and to trust the process of the Al-Anon program. And today's reminder is Al-Anon is a gentle healing program. I will remember to be gentle with myself today, trusting that the healing will come. Thank you, Harriet. You suggested this topic, so I think I'm going to let you start by um, explaining what you meant when you said letting go of the process as as a topic idea. Well, I have been in Al-Anon for a little over a year, and in the beginning, I really loved the intellectualization part of it. I loved listening to all of your podcasts and learning about it and sort of, you know, learning about what had happened. And then, you know, over the course of the year, things had happened. My qualifier got sober. So the process was different for me. And then, you know, other challenges have come along for me in this past year. And in terms of controlling the process, I guess part of what I mean is what it's like to really actually, you know, live a program in real time, as opposed to intellectualizing it. I know in the beginning, when I first started, I was really, really regimented with Um, and that was something, you know, I must've spent two hours a day trying to do self-care and miraculously I felt great, you know, having done that, but that was really not sustainable. Part of my process, I think I realize is it's like a personal process in addition to the process of recovery. So by that, I sort of mean, 
understanding that part of my process is going to extremes, that I often need to bounce back from one extreme, and then I sometimes go to the other extreme many times before I'm able to find my space, before I'm able to take a deep breath and settle to where I actually am. Mm -hmm. You talked about a number of things there, I think. You talked about control. You talked about overdoing the self-care part. And also, going back to the the reading here, and it, it talks about also becoming impatient with myself, and I'm not sure you said that, but but that struck me. You know, perhaps I expect recovery to happen overnight. Right. So, you know, in the beginning where I am in my recovery, there was a huge surge of how much better I felt, you know, in the very beginning of the program. And then I think there's a big link for me to this expectation of that this is how recovery should be. And it's sort of linked with part of my recovery is being in alignment with the expectation of how life really should be, you know? And I think coming into the program, I sort of still, not sort of, I absolutely still have these perfectionistic hopes or that that, you know, is a goal. That initial surge of feeling so much better initially absolutely fed that. Like my expectation was, oh, I'm just going to sort of follow this upward path of getting better, 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 and then I'm just going to be perfect. So I think that part of it is I have these expectations that are not really realistic of what the recovery process is, is, is part of, you know, an issue that I'm trying to work through is, is one of the things in terms of being impatient, but it's, being impatient with myself, I sort of have an example, mm-hmm. a real life example. I was visiting my mom the other day. I was there with my 10 year old daughter, and my mom has inoperable cancer. We were at her house, and I just started obsessively cleaning her apartment, you know, like, and an hour went by, and I felt great, you know, and Three hours went by and I was still obsessively cleaning and organizing for her. It wasn't really until the end of the day before I went to bed that I even realized what I was doing, that I was connected to that. Instead of sort of just softening and sinking in to like, that's sort of my process, that obsession can be a barometer for me. I sort of went into this judgment that I felt like, you know, I should have been able to see that and, you know, I should have been able to have avoided that. I guess by, you know, respecting the process and part of it, I mean, is to be willing to feel a little bit of discomfort in the form of feelings in general. That's, that's sort of part of what I mean by that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the beginning, I latched on to let go as, as sort of my mantra. The relief that I got from that was pretty much immediate, that, mm-hmm. that I was not frantically trying to control my wife's drinking 
Although that then morphed into what am I going to do if she keeps on drinking? But still the relief of, of not having to do this thing that I couldn't do was, was huge. And then time sort of went on and I didn't get another big jump like that kind of, well, what do I do now? What do I, how do I, how do I, how do I get that feeling again? How do I get more of that feeling? I like that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) And there was this, I've heard it referred to uh, definitely in AA as the the pink cloud when you're, when you're in early recovery and you're just so relieved that the day to day uh, obsession and pain is, is not there that it's very tempting to sort of stop working Mm-hmm. Say, oh, hey, things are better now. Okay, I don't have to do this like program stuff. And I think I'm fortunate in that while I was still in pain, uh, I got together with several other people in the program who became friends. We formed a, a step study group that we met once a week going through the past recovery book together. And so I had that commitment to that group. So even when I was feeling like everything's great, you know, she's she's sober, she's been through treatment, everything's going to be good, she's not going to drink anymore, I still had that commitment to the group. So I kept moving forward with that. And I kept going, I think, pretty much to one meeting a week, uh, sort of slacked off from, from the multiple meetings I had been going to. And then, oh, eight or nine months into my program, she relapsed. I was really fortunate that I still had some program going uh, because I was able to recover from the shock of the relapse a lot more quickly than if I had just sort of totally dropped the program, I think. But, you know, I did have that feeling like, oh, do I really need to keep doing this? And I'm glad I did (laughs) because now I know I, I need to keep doing it. And something else, and and I'm going again, sort of going back to this, impatience, uh, recovery happening overnight, that we talk sometimes about how working the program in particular, I think this comes up in the context of uh, step four, taking a fearless and searching moral inventory. We talk about peeling the layers of an onion. Mm -hmm. And I have definitely found that as I work the program, as I go through one cycle of the steps, if you will, and do an inventory and so on and so forth, then I find new things coming up mm-hmm. that I hadn't seen before that had been hidden. If I hadn't heard that this was going to happen, that might discourage me. Like this is never going to end. Well, yeah, it is never going to end. It's going to keep on getting better. You know, there will be ups and downs. And I think that the first time I hit a down uh, probably was with that relapse, I didn't let that push me off the program. I realized at that point that I actually needed the program more. And I think that's part of what happens when I live recovery, is that I find support, I find tools that I can use, and and when something comes up in my life, I have a something I can I can pick up and use, I have something I can lean on, I have people that I can ask for, for help that all came from from doing the work in the first place. I thought it was interesting you talked about, you know, doing this obsessive cleaning, and I thought 
I can't think of an example now, but I know that there are things that I did. I thought, I don't know how to deal with this situation, so I'm going to do something that I know I can do that might make a difference, whether that might be cleaning or, I don't know, I, I, I'm having trouble with examples right now. I, I think that there have been times, for example, when I've really thrown myself into work. Things mm-hmm. are hopeless at home, but I can go to work and make a difference. Mm-hmm. I can go to work and 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 get something done, uh, and I think that's that's a way in which I'm trying to control an outcome here. I'm trying to make well, I'm trying to make myself feel better, right? Mm-hmm. By doing something like that. You know, one thing I think in the very beginning when I started Al Anon, I really felt like I was there because of a situation that I couldn't control. Yeah, and I guess that that's what really brought me there. Part of my process is, you know, the situation has changed and it may change again and again, but the the singular stable variable is me, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really different animal for me to accept a situation and like accepting sort of the situation as it was, was not hard for me. When I first came in, I had no problem seeing that my life was unmanageable. And the situation working through that was one thing. But this is sort of like, you know, for me, my next layer of the onion is working on on my stuff and me and, and sort of my process and, and bringing it back to that. I know in the beginning of Al-Anon, I really felt incredibly uncomfortable with all feelings that were almost all feelings for the most part. I really felt like I should not feel anger to be part of the program that anger wasn't really allowed. And it was uncomfortable for me to feel frustration or other feelings because oftentimes they would lead me to this obsessive or compulsive behavior it was so undesirable for me to feel these feelings that I certainly, in doing my fourth step, I found that I acted in many ways singularly to be motivated to avoid having these feelings. And seeing now and sort of making space for these feelings within my personal process to make space for anger because it tells me something. It tells me that I need to look at, you know, my boundaries and my choices and and whatnot and to be willing to feel frustration because that tells me something to sort of be willing to go through it. And I guess when I talk about trying to circumvent the process, in many ways, it is a feeling and in so too with the obsessive feelings that I have or or the obsessive behaviors, thoughts and behaviors, I guess. It is oftentimes for me, really, it tells me something, though my first response is sort of to judge myself and maybe feel shame about it, that it's a part of my process to begin with. So when I talk about trying to circumvent my process Part of it is feelings and part of it is the inevitable regression. Or I was reading, Melody Beatty called it recycling, how it's just a natural part of anyone's process and how imperative it is. But making space for that, sort of finding a peace with that 
is sort of my work that I feel like, you know, I've been doing now. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of good things about the blocks that, that maybe keep us from letting go, that keep you from mm-hmm. letting go. And mm-hmm. I definitely have some of those too. And one of the big ones for me is wanting to avoid unpleasant feelings. Mm-hmm. And also the, we talked about judgment and shame and, and I'm thinking about one of the parts of the program that I really wanted to like do it my way. Uh, and I, and I did do it. I did in fact do it my way the f- the first time through. And that was step five. I was effectively working the steps uh, with this, this group of people. And we were, we were in the path to recovery book and, and there's some, I don't know, 40 questions or something on step four that really take you through a, a fairly thorough inventory and we did those questions together in the group. And so I felt, well, I have in this group already said out loud all of my shortcomings or uh, defects of character. And uh, as it says in step five, the exact nature of my wrongs. And so I, I felt like I don't need to do this again with, a, with, a pers- with another person. So I didn't. And I think that a big part of that was not wanting, even though I had admitted all these things to seven other people, actually sitting down with, with somebody and going through the whole list of, of my wrongs again, just felt overwhelming that it felt like I would be uh, full of shame and I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't, Uh, and I didn't really understand. And, and it wasn't until I did step five again, some years later, that I really understood the power of putting that all together. And partly, partly that what I cheated myself of by, by trying to do it my way instead of the program way for step five was I cheated myself of really telling myself, admitting to myself the exact nature of my wrongs. Because when I did it again, the process of sort of going through the step four inventory and pulling out the 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 character defects from there and trying to see patterns in them in a shorter list you know and you get this book that's pages and pages and pages long with and well it answers to the questions out of out of the past recovery book and some of them were about assets some of them were about defects and and we did it over the period of several months and so i never had to pull it all together in one place at one time and so i never really admitted to myself which is also part of step five. And so, and then the power of sitting down with one person and going through that list of freeing myself, freeing myself from, from what I thought was going to be that shameful experience. And it, and it wasn't. Um, and I missed that the first time around. And I think that was the best I could do at the time. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not uh, kicking myself for the way I did or didn't do it, but I'm recognizing that potentially it, it it could have been a more powerful experience had I been able to to follow the program instead of trying to take control of that step and, and sort of tell myself that I had done it and therefore I didn't have to actually do it in the way that the book says. Mm-hmm. You know, I want it to be perfect. Uh, and if it's not going to be perfect, then I'm not going to do it. Uh, whoa, yeah. <laughs> um, another one that, that I still, uh, I'm getting better at, uh, and, you know, for the number of years I've been in the program is step nine, that there are still 
some amends that I really have not fully made. Some of those are because I don't yet necessarily completely understand the wrong. Some of those are because the person to whom I need to make amends is no longer available to make amends to. Um, And a few of those are because I don't want to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I still take control of the process at times and uh, uh, in, in a number of ways. So what I wonder here is, is how do you find that letting go of the process actually aids your recovery, aids your serenity? Well, I find that one of the things, you know, one of the questions that's sort of maybe for me a precursor to that is what don't I want to let go of? It's two things, really. First of all, it's definitely outcomes. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time letting go of outcomes. I'm working on it. But that is one thing. Another is sort of, there is comfort. You know, it's not perhaps a way that will bring me most happiness. But the thing that I don't want to let go of is probably the comfort of having tried to control myself for a very long time. I grew up in in a house with a, a rageaholic parent. And so, you know, my greatest sort of tool to keep myself safe was really to control, you know, myself. And even though it's not healthy, it is incredibly comfortable to sort of be in that place. But that having been said, what letting go does for me is when I'm able to see what I need to let go of, then I'm able to actually focus on what will help me. Focusing on outcomes for me and focusing on trying to control my emotions or to control the world even more so I don't have to feel certain emotions is a fool's errand. And I, you know, that is what makes my life unmanageable ultimately. By seeing that and letting go of those things that I don't even have to control them or as something to control, it definitely frees me up. I I mean, it's not surprising to me that I haven't been doing a whole lot of self-care because there's not a lot of time left over when I'm trying to control the world myself and outcomes (laughs) of everything, you know, that I want to see happen. Though for me, I have to say that before I really can let go, what is helpful to me is I'm seeing that I need to accept my process and where I am and my emotions or my fear of them or my attachment to outcomes for what it actually is now. I have to do that first instead of For me, I always sort of go to shame first. That's my go-to. Instead of comparing where I think I should be, the first thing I have to do is accept where and who I actually am now. And that's sort of, you know, the first thing that I need to do, um, which is really a step one, you know, experience for me. And only after I've done that, 
sort of the whole step two for me. I don't know where I am with God. For me, my higher power is really the universe at large. And it is a function of just being open and being soft and being teachable. I, I had shared the other day that I, I can tell that when I'm not open, to me, it's sort of this visual of like almost a portal, like open to the universe, open to more than just me. My world becomes very, very small when I'm closed off. I become the judge and the jury and the patient and the surgeon. And I'm not teachable at that point. So I guess first I need to accept where I actually am. To step two is really to find the humility to be teachable and to be open to something greater than what's in my head. That may be for me, you know, talking to a sponsor, but I sort of have to be open to that first. I have to be, there has to be a certain amount of humility and openness before I do that. And only when I've done those things, I find, can I then let go of the outcome, you know, in my experience to the universe? So that's sort of, you know, my process. I also certainly, a lot of my attachment to outcomes, having done step four or or sort of being almost through it, is I certainly see, you know, there's a big issue of fear that I feel very fear-driven. And to me, I see that, you know, fear is a barometer for me. And I always, always go to control. I don't see it usually at the moment. But part of, you know, my process, and it's, it's a work in process too, is that to recognize my emotions and those feelings that, that they're, they're, teaching me something, if I am open to what they're teaching me, you know, and for me going back to the, you know, experience with my mom being obsessive and, and having this compulsive behavior, I could, I guess, go through the shame part of it. And maybe that's part of my process though. I could also, as I evolve, be open to seeing that that is trying to tell me something. You know, it's trying to tell me that I am afraid. Am I afraid of something that I can control? Or am I afraid of, is my, you know, effort best left to try to let go of that outcome? For me, it's actually working the steps instead of just knowing about the steps and intellectualizing the steps for me, it is trying to consciously integrate the steps into my life. Yeah. And you talked about fear and you talked about humility. And then I think about um, step seven, uh, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Sometimes if I have a particular character trait that maybe I view as a shortcoming, I don't know how I'm going to be with that character trait gone. I don't know how I'm going to act, how I'm going to feel if if that character trait is removed. And so I might have some fear about that. And who am I going to be? If if you take away all of my all of my defects of character, who am I going to be? What's what's going to replace them? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Step seven asks us to do this in humility, which has a lot of definitions of humility, but the one that I like is 
as being open to learning or being teachable. I was recently listening to an AA Open Talk from, I think, 1959. This fellow was talking about having a lot of trouble with this notion of humility and with this notion of surrendering his will to some higher power that he didn't understand what it was. He didn't necessarily believe in it. He talked about coming to this understanding for him that that humility was uh, the willingness to learn, that of recognizing that he doesn't know everything, and that maybe his higher power or maybe the program has something to teach him. That sort of goes to me as a counterpoint to the fear. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen when I start to change. I don't know who I'm going to be, but I can be willing to learn to be a new way. I can be willing to learn to do things in a new way. And that's all I have to, that's all I need. If I, if I have that humility of understanding that, um, you know, I don't know everything that I don't do everything right, if you will. And that's very judgmental saying, right. But, and that, when I listen, when I pay attention, when I give myself into the care of, of a higher power, that I can learn a new way. And that that new way will be at, at least as, as good, if you will, as, as what I'm doing now, and, and probably better, uh, at least for my serenity and, and my interactions with the people around me and so on. Um, so those that's... Those sort of formed a nice balance for me in, in what you were saying. I really like also this acceptance of who I am right now, where I am in my program right now, not not looking forward to where I'm going to be when I'm all done, because I'm never going to be all done, and not kicking myself because I'm not further along, mm-hmm. saying I, 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 am, I am where I am, and... I will move forward at the at the speed that I move forward and and maybe I'll move backwards a little from time to time and that when I stop trying to force it along I actually maybe find that things move better you know the first the first major change that I saw in myself besides this like relief of oh I don't have to like keep on trying to keep my wife sober the first major change that I saw in myself was the removal of rage and I know that I had nothing to do with that. Like there was nothing I could do to be not angry. There was no mantra I could chant, no specific steps towards being not angry that I could take. Mm-hmm. It just went away. And that was one of the, that that happened around the, or I noticed that that had happened. Let's put it that way. I guess I went around the time when I was working steps two and three and, and I took that as, evidence that when I let go, when I let go of trying to, I don't know, (laughs) control my anger, whatever it was, when I gave myself, as they say, when I gave myself to this program of recovery, that happened. And I don't understand the mechanism by which it happened. I can talk about, well, having a place to express my anger and so on and so forth. But the result is that I didn't understand how those 12 steps had any relevance to the problem in my life. I just did them because other people told me they would help. Mm-hmm. Well, step one was obvious. Okay. But the other steps just, you know, what does that have to do with 
like my wife not drinking. And I first I had to come to understand that it wasn't about my wife not drinking. But I still didn't really see that until, and th- that was sort of the first indication of, if I do these things that people say to do, even though I don't understand why, then things got better. And and I think that's a block for me, actually, this why. Mm-hmm. Why does this work? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm reminded of of a, a sort of a quip that, that somebody made about the chapter in the AA Big Book. He says it's titled How It Works. It's not titled Why It Works. Mm. You know, it's a program of doing. And it's a program sometimes of, uh, if you will, and I hate the term, sort of blind faith. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not blind per se. I mean, it, it, I have the evidence of other people who've gone before me that it worked for them. So maybe I don't see where my path is going, but I can, I can take that path with my eyes open in, in faith that it worked for them and that therefore it's worth trying for me. And I think that's another thing that really helps me to let go is when I hear the evidence of other people's progress. When I hear other people talking about doing the things that I'm resisting doing and and finding strength, finding serenity, finding recovery in, in those things. Uh, and that's where, you know, for me, working with a sponsor, uh, working with other people in the program has been really helpful because they can give me some of that experience. Yeah, I was there. This is what I did. This is what happened. And I can say, hmm. Well, I guess I'll try that. Or, nah, don't think that'll work for me. And I'm going to go looking for another answer. And I go look for another answer for a while. And and then maybe I try it and maybe it works. What about sort of in the moment? If you're finding uh, resistance at some, doing something that, that you believe the program tells you to do. And, and you're saying, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do it a different way. How, how might you in the moment uh, get past that? You know, for me, breathing is, you know, my form of meditation. And to me, it's part of it, I think, as I had said, that my vision of a higher power is sort of being open to the universe. And breathing, to me, just sort of feels like I'm taking in more than just myself. I'm sort of taking the universe in. That is helpful for me. I have this thing that I have done and I, I I don't know why, but I like sort of, I, I touch my thumb against, you know, all of my fingers. And I think it's sort of another form of meditation that that sort of brings in a sensory, it, it brings in another focus. Um, and it's an exercise in mindfulness too, in that moment. Um, and sometimes I just, it's it's maybe the awareness of resistance that I'm starting to get used to that feeling of that maybe I just need to feel the feeling first mm-hmm. and then I'm able to do those things that I had mentioned. Yeah. And I think that coming back to the moment is really important for me because a lot of my Resistance comes in living in the future or living in the past, mm-hmm. living in anger and resentment or living in fear. If I'm living in fear, I'm almost always living in the future. And if I'm living in anger and resentment, I'm almost always living in the past. And so if I can bring myself back to the present moment, 
that can really help to uh, to remove, to lift those feelings. Yeah, prayer and meditation is important there for me, and and in particular that uh, that simple one word prayer help, mm. which is an admission that I can't do it all on my own. Particularly if I'm trying, if I'm trying to do it all on my own, and that word "trying" I think is is telling. Right? Trying means that I'm pushing on something that I'm really trying to take control and push some particular outcome. It's tricky because I talk about sometimes talk about working on a particular character defect, and how is how is that sort of not control? And this is a, a place in the program where where I still am am feeling control issues. And I think this is a reading in in Paths to Recovery. I think on on step six or seven talks about having to do having to practice new behavior. I know I heard this in in a, in an open talk uh, a couple of years ago. I can never get these guys' names right. Joe and Charlie that yeah. uh, have a series of of talks on the on the steps in AA and. They talked about practicing the new behavior, and this is our choice as as our higher power is removing our defects of character that we can choose to continue to do the old behavior or we can we can start to practice the new behavior and and I got that i got well both I got both the experience and the understanding from from hearing that uh, and experience from some things that happened in my life around that time that the way that that has has worked for me in many aspects of my life is that in in some way let's say i've got i've got a fear that's preventing me from from doing a particular behavior that i really want to do that would be healthier for me in in whatever way but i've got this fear that's preventing me from doing it when i ask for help from a higher power what happens is that the 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 fear is lessened and that gives me an opportunity to practice doing things in a new way. But if I don't practice, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So when I say, I can say I'm working on this particular character defect, and and hopefully what I mean when I say that is not that i am got this outcome in mind about how this character defect is going to be removed and I'm pushing myself towards that outcome. What I mean is that I'm I'm working to practice a new behavior that will uh, hopefully be a more a healthier way, a more comfortable way, a, a way with more serenity to uh, to to do something that I've been doing in a way that that causes pain in some fashion. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm very clear on that. <laughs> Does that make any yeah, sense at I all? I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. And so, first recognition there is asking for help. That's right. Circling back that that help prayer. And recognizing change, and sometimes it's hard to recognize change in myself, and I need somebody else to highlight that for me. Whether that's somebody saying to me, wow, uh, you used to do this thing and you're not doing it very much anymore. And that could be sort of stated in that positive way, or it could be as happened in my performance review this year where uh, we've been talking over the last few years, my boss and I, about communication issues that I have, and in particular, sort of a projection of 
unapproachability of, as he put it, he said, I understand I don't uh, suffer fools gladly either, <laughs> which is kind of a, a cutting way of putting it, but I think is, is, is at the root of a lot of the communication issues that I have had at work, which is that I know the right way to do it. And, and if you want to do it some other way, you're just wrong. And that comes through sort of tone of voice, uh, et cetera, if not, if not explicitly in words. And this year when I brought up, obviously I brought up the communication issue. I said, I think I've improved. I think that I'm now at the meets expectations level in the way we grade things in our performance review. And he agreed with me and he said, I don't think I heard from anybody this year that, that you were intimidating them. I don't think he used that exact word, but that was sort of the, you know, these incidents that had come to his attention in previous years did not happen this year. And so that's sort of a negative way of saying, Hey, you've improved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The bad things aren't happening anymore. Let's see if we can make some more good things happen kind of thing. So sometimes it's an explicit recognition, getting back to this notion of seeing progress. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm able to see progress, I'm less likely to try to really push hard on making it happen uh, or, or feeling like it's not happening, which gets back to this sort of impatience and so on. The other way that that sometimes happens to me is I'll be sitting in a meeting and somebody will talk about something that happened in their life and this sort of light bulb will go on in my head and I'll recognize that I faced, maybe faced a similar situation recently and handled it in a completely new way. And so somebody, it, there's a sort of self-recognition, but it needed that external sort of stimulus for me to have that recognition. Mm-hmm. And the third way that I see progress is by periodically trying to do an inventory. And that happens maybe less often than I maybe think it should. I don't know. One of my meetings every first Saturday of the month, one of the tables is working its way slowly through the Blueprint for Progress book. So whoever's sitting at that table, we talk about one or more of whatever questions we're on as as the table's working its way through the book. And, and, and this week we were talking about in the maturity section. And I was able, in answering the two questions that we did that day, to actually see uh, some some progress in in some aspects of my life. And not something that I had been necessarily trying to control. So that was cool. It is cool. What would you say to somebody who's new to the program, who's in that place where they're just not sure it's going to work for them? Well, this sort of links links for me that in terms of expectations that the discomfort that comes with awareness is a part of the process and that sometimes that you just need to actually go through that. I I sort of have this analogy to, I went to the gym for the first time yesterday and tried to run and Mm -hmm. I, for the first time in like a year Mm -hmm. and you know, I remember running, it's like the first two or three minutes are so hideous and painful of trying to catch your breath. And then what always happens is like people who, who keep going after that first two to three minutes, 
you sort of surrender and your breathing like just sort of evens out and you make space for yourself and your breathing and your effort within the run. Now I did take the run too far, (laughs) (laughs) but it's sort of that same thing with the discomfort. And I would say that the kindest thing, the greatest, you know, act of kindness that one could extend to themselves, I think is to, make the space for your emotions and to have patience for the process. And I I know from my own experience that when I do make space and allowance for whatever my process is and for my emotions, it is only then that I can let go of other people's processes Because the question before, what would I say to a newcomer is, what do I still struggle with letting go of? Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of it for me is when I am not at peace and allowing space for my own process, I can't give that to anybody else. I notice that when, when I do give that to myself, the ability, whatever my process is, discomfort, feelings, and setbacks. When I see it as a process to a greater good, I then have patience and space for other people and their processes, which I don't know how, but I feel lighter because of that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have an answer that's nearly as deep as that. (laughs) (laughs) So we have this newcomers meeting after um, one of my meetings and, and it sort of rotates whoever's leading the meeting. And I, I've been doing it the last couple of months to the best of my ability, which has not been so good in some cases because I've had to miss some meetings. One of the questions that I often have gotten is how does this help my loved one? I mean, from people who are really new, like I don't understand how this helps the alcoholic, the addict in my life who I've been trying to save. And I think maybe I get that question more often from, from parents of, of alcoholics than, than Mm -hmm. maybe spouses or siblings or whatever. But one of the things that, that I have said in response to that question is, is to use that uh, oxygen mask analogy Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you're on the plane and they're giving you the emergency instructions, they always tell you to put on your own oxygen mask first. And that it's really hard to help someone else in any way when I myself am struggling. The The steps of the program, the whole program is aimed at helping me live a happier, more serene, more balanced life and when I've got that oxygen mask on, then I'm better able to provide whatever help and support the others around me may need. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I say is really simple, which is um, if you heard something here tonight that touched you, that resonated with something in your life, even if you're not exactly sure what it is, keep coming. Uh, keep coming and mm-hmm. And I think you will find more help. And eventually, and, and you know, it's a gentle program. And I think, I think you said that. So I think that actually the reading talked about mm-hmm. uh, being gentle on oneself. And, and one, of my, one of my 
co-host that hasn't been here in a little while, actually, Wendy, always is talking about how gentle the program is, that the program lets us proceed at our own pace. And I take that to mean not proceeding necessarily at the pace that I want to proceed at, but proceeding at the pace Mm -hmm. that I need to proceed at. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes I need to take some time for things to just soak in. Sometimes I'm not ready to take that next step. Whatever whether that's, you know, one of the 12 steps or just, you know, maybe trying some new behavior. Maybe I'm not ready and and, and I need to give myself the time and the space to be ready. Mm-hmm. And so we don't we don't force people into some kind of schedule. We don't say, hey, you're here, man. You, you you need to get a sponsoring. You need to start working the steps right now. And sometimes I wonder if that's a good thing or not. But I think in general, it is for this program because for so many of us, our problems are not always obvious. The reason that we're coming is not always obvious. It was for me. And, you know, as you say, you, you first come because of some problem, some crisis that's happening in your life. But I also talk to people who are like, I'm just not feeling comfortable in my life. And, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home and I'm not really sure why I'm here, but I think it might help. Mm-hmm. And, and to those people, I, you know, I'm going to say, give us a try. What do you lose? You lose an hour or so once a week mm-hmm. and you might gain your life. After a short break, We will continue with our lives in recovery, where we'll talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And the first musical selection that I picked, uh, which again, you can always listen to the musical selections on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 105. It's from Broken Bells, from their After the Disco album, and it's titled Control. And to me, you know, we talked about control versus letting go, so I thought, I've got to have a control song in here. (laughs) And the song really, if you listen to the words all the way through, it's about control in a love relationship and maybe not a totally healthy love relationship. But I think that the lyrics can apply to control over other things in life and life in general. And here's just a few. It's just you endlessly needing control. Well, you got to give it up, 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 give it up. You lost control because nothing stays around too long. In this section of the podcast, we'll talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week, and how we're practicing these principles in our lives. Harriet, how was your week? What was up? Not too much this week. Although one thing I've done, actually, um, I'm, I'm proud of myself for, is I have wanted to incorporate an extra meeting, but with working and the weekends and having little kids, it's hard for me to do. And it has taken me like two months to be able to create this space in my schedule, but I have done it. And this coming week, I have added another meeting during the week that I'm going to be able to go to that I sort of X'd out time for myself. So that was pretty huge for me. On Friday, I went to um, a meeting and it was on step two. And that was really great. It was so exactly what I needed to hear. And the speaker just was so humble and connectable. And I actually think she was maybe one of the first people I sat next to um, at a real meeting. 
and it was great to hear her story. And I always need help, you know, feeling, connecting with humility and softening. And, and I definitely, there were a lot of great chairs there. And I am doing the podcast, which to me is part of my recovery too. And I am not sure, but I plan to go to a meeting later this afternoon also. Thanks. I'm thinking back. It's actually been, well, it's been two weeks since I've, I've done the podcast because last last weekend, and and this is, you know, maybe connected, last weekend I spent uh, Friday evening and most of Saturday with a group of uh, young people from my faith we met Met in uh, in another town because they're from uh, all around uh, Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. We met down in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we come together a couple times a year to plan uh, youth weekend conferences. And the next one coming up is a is a social justice themed conference. So we spent some time talking about that, but we also spent uh, a fair amount of time talking about the ways in which we work together within this group and the ways in which we want to bring people to be together at these conferences, because, you know, it's not just about coming together and maybe learning some things and having some fun. It's also gathering people into a spiritual community for a weekend and really working to form a community. And that, that doesn't just happen. Uh, it it takes some some work and some planning to to form a community that's going to be together for what thirty six hours maybe if that from yeah from Friday evening to Sunday morning that's about thirty six hours and to how to in particular how to bring teenagers into participation full participation in the community uh, when there many of them are more focused on what's going on at school, what's going on with their with their friends, maybe they're in a relationship, maybe the person they're in a relationship with is also at the conference, and we want to sort of form one body, not a bunch of little separate bodies. And and this, this group is, the adults in this group that, I want to say committee, but it's not really committee. Um, that's why I keep saying group. Uh, the adults are there as guides, and as support, not as the leaders, the teens are, are supposed to be doing the leading, and they do. And that's also um, pretty amazing to see people stepping up and, uh, you know, a group of, what, eight teens helping to plan a conference for 100 people over a weekend. And I remember some years ago talking to the uh, one of the ministers at our church because they were trying to bring bring one of these conferences into our, our church for the, for a weekend. And, and she was saying, but you know, this, it's so much, they, it's so much work planning a conference. You, you know, people spend a, a year planning a, a weekend conference. And, and I said, look, we just, you know, we do this thing and we do this like three or four times a year and we know how to do it and you don't have to worry about it. And it's really amazing to see, to see, you know, these young people who range from uh, ninth to 12th grade uh, stepping up and, and doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And and taking responsibility and ownership of of uh, you know planning workshops and planning the ways in which we're going to bring people into community it's just wonderful. Uh, but in in consequence of doing that, uh, I did not have the energy to do the podcast last week. So 
Um, I posted a, a best of episode, the one about relapse. Last Sunday, we had um, some snow here. Uh, <laughs> putting it mildly, it, uh, it snowed 14 inches in 24 hours, which is, you know, a fair amount of snow. And uh, in, in consequence, Sunday night was sort of at the height of this, this blizzard. And the AA guys that actually opened the church in which my Sunday night Al-Anon meeting is held decided that it was not safe for people to be out. And honestly, the sheriff had issued a don't drive unless it's absolutely necessary order. So uh, we didn't have, a, didn't have a meeting on Sunday, which actually was okay with me because uh, we were having dinner with, with our daughter. And so that way I didn't have to feel like I had to rush away at the end so I could hit the meeting. So that was good. Uh, my Wednesday night meeting, uh, first meeting of the month, we always have somebody do uh, a sort of a first step talk. Uh, and I think the person who was selecting the, the speaker, I think what happened is like she said, actually, I asked a bunch of people and nobody said yes. Uh, which I'm like, hey, when the program asks, you're supposed to say yes, but whatever. Okay, that's me trying to control things. <laughs> uh, so uh, she and another fellow split the the half hour time, uh, and each did about 15 minutes. And 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 that that was it gave a, a little bit of a contrast in their two stories and in the way they approached uh, step one and how they they expressed um, the power of step one in their life and. It triggered some some really good, really good shares from other people, and in particular, one of the stories was about you know, growing up in an alcoholic home and how that had affected this person's life in even into you know thirty years later or something. And and a couple of people spoke up about yeah, wow, you know, I came into this program for a particular reason, and then I realized that like alcoholism is rampant throughout my family and. You know, I'm going back to see my family recently for, I think one person shared about going back to see their family for a funeral and being concerned about how they were going, how how much they were going to be sort of thrown back into the old family mode of interaction. Spoke of, I don't want to pick up the rope, but I'm afraid I will. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, it's good for me to hear about other people's fears because I may have those same things in my life. I know when I go back to visit my parents, um, I have to work hard not to pick up the, pick up the rope or react to the buttons that that they installed so many years ago. It's good for me to hear that I'm not the only person that happens to, you know? Mm -hmm. And then yesterday I spoke about yesterday's meeting where we were going through, uh, going through the uh, blueprint for progress and, and we, had a couple questions on maturity and the interesting thing for me, I was using my blueprint that I had filled in a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago. And one of the questions that, that we were looking at yesterday, I had not written an answer to like, I didn't at that time was not able to verbalize an answer to that question in, in order to write it down. And, and here's seeing progress because, uh, I had an answer to it this time. I was able to talk about the question was sort of how do I form my own opinions? And I just left it blank. Like, I don't know how I form my opinions. I just have them. <laughs> and, and what I, what I realized this time looking at that question was that at least in the area of sort of social political opinions, my opinions come from my values. 
And I don't know why, like two or three years ago when I was filling this in, I couldn't see that. And I think it has to do with just some of the work I've been doing since then and in sort of looking at what are my values and what is the purpose, sort of what is the purpose of my life, right? Not just to sort of live and and do things, Mm but, you know, do I have a, do I have a purpose? And, and I have to say that this podcast really has become part of, uh, or is reflection of a purpose of sort of carrying a recovery message um, when I can, you know, a step 12 thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe back this is definitely was before the podcast when I had done this blueprint and I don't think I really recognized, I really had taken the time to sit down and think about sort of what my values are. I just sort of knew I had some. And so maybe I couldn't see that, that my opinions come from them. So that was, that was an interesting recognition of growth there mm-hmm. for me during the meeting. And I'm sure there are things that happened outside of meetings this week in my life, but I'm not bringing any, any to mind right now. So, thinking about upcoming topics and I'm really kind of blanked on, on what I want to do next. Um, keep talking about caretaking. I've had uh, feedback from a couple of people recently about uh, parenting and in particular uh, how to be maybe the, the Al-Anon parent in an alcoholic family. Uh, and in particular, maybe whether that, whether the alcoholism is still active or not, um, whether you as a parent are still with the alcoholic or whether you've separated um, some questions that, that I'm thinking about there are sort of how do you talk to your children about alcoholism, about um, maybe the actions of your spouse. And I'm not saying that necessarily to you, Harriet, but to, to, to our listeners out there, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you're in that situation where you are married to or have been married to, an alcoholic, do you talk to your children about it? How do you talk to your children about it? Have you had to make amends to your children because of some of the, the things that you did and maybe in reaction to the alcoholic behavior? If your spouse is still drinking, what actions do you take to keep your children safe in that, uh, when they're maybe with that person? So love to hear from, from anybody out there who's, who's got thoughts on this. Please think about doing so. And how can people do that, Harriet? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or questions about today's topic of letting go of the process, or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? That would be on the website, which is therecoveryshow.com. We have all the information about the show there, including notes for each episode links to the music that we talk about, links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And uh, there's there's a lot of ways to contribute. You can leave comments on the blog. You can be a guest host like Harriet is today. Uh, email feedback at com if you're interested in doing that. We will take a short break before diving into the mailbag. 
Our second musical selection available on the website is Breathe Me by Sia. I have always loved this song. It's sort of like the general tenor of the song is one of somebody who's sort of stuck in, in their own stuff. It goes, help, I've done it again. I have been here many times before, hurt myself today, and I know there's no one else to blame. And that's always sort of struck me as somebody in very much a closed system who could, who could sort of open up and let the world in. Got uh, got some voicemail and some email this week, and uh, want to start with uh, some voicemail from Akila. And unfortunately, uh, the first one gets gets cut off in the middle. She calls back later with with some more on it. Um, I don't know exactly what happened, uh, but let's listen. Hey Spencer, this is Akila. I'm calling in response to the boundary episode. The first thing I wanted to say is Maria was talking about the boundaries on our own behavior when we're staying up late and trying to figure those things out. And for me, those boundaries are that self-care, which is, it is, I guess we can think of it as a type of boundary, but to me, those are really self-care issues. And the way I think about self-care is um, what will make me feel better today. And also, it's just, it takes practice to play with that boundary. And it got cut off there, and then she called back. Hey, Spencer, it's Akila again. I was calling to clarify what I meant by consequences and boundaries because I don't, I realize that, um, I may not have been clear. What I meant is that, um, there, I try not to think of consequences as my behavior when I enforce my boundaries. So for example, if my daughter oversleeps and misses school and I don't wake her up, the natural consequence is that she missed school, she can't make up her assignments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, the fact that she overslept, her oversleeping, the consequence is not me not waking her up. That is the choice I make to protect my sanity, which is not a consequence of her not waking up. I hope that makes sense. I felt like it was a little um, convoluted when I explained it, so I just wanted to, to clarify what I meant by that. Um, likewise, if I, the example Maria gave was if she and her husband were fighting and then she might say she would leave the room if he got real nasty. I don't, for me, leaving the room wouldn't be a consequence of his behavior. That would be me protecting myself. The consequence would be, I don't know what his consequence is. Does that make sense? I don't know. It sounds crazy when, I, when I'm trying to explain it. Um, the other thing I want to say is there was a question about dealing with anxiety that comes from not knowing what will happen with your loved one. And one of the things I've realized is that when I set about going back to boundaries, when I set boundaries, when I stand up for myself, when I do things that I don't normally do and I am kind of anticipating how the person will react, I do get really anxious. Like one time I had to, um, I told my mom I wasn't going to do something because I didn't want to do it. And then she went out and I was sitting home like, oh, my gosh, she's going to freak out and what's going to happen. You know, that was the anxiety of it. And I think that's just the effects of this disease and living with not knowing what will happen um, and trying to be in control of everything. And so what the best thing for me to do when I feel that anxious is to go to a meeting 
and we have meetings here every day, and I realize not everybody has that. But one thing I have learned is any meeting. So if I can't make an Al-Anon meeting, I try to find an AA meeting, and in most places there are AA meetings every day, an open one, of course, um, or call in a fellow or listen to a podcast, either a speaker, speaker meeting or this meeting. Journaling helps me just to get that fear and that stuff out on paper. Um, going to exercise so I have something to do with all of that energy. Usually I feel better after I've exercised. I've calmed down. My mind has stopped racing because I'm out of my head and into my body. And I put my feet where my head is, you know, so I'm like, oh, I'm concentrating on whatever I'm doing. Um, so those kinds of things help me deal with the anxiety, the not knowing. And um, it's not always easy, of course, and sometimes it takes a little bit more work. Than- and cut off. But I think she got her thought done there. Um, have any thoughts about uh, what Akilah had to say? I always like Akilah shares. I got, I think, what she meant. I really love what she talked about, about sort of having this energy and transferring it, you know, sharing it with the rest of you, you know, so like having this, uh, having this thought and sort of being able to find the present moment through the physicality of, of running or looking for an outlet for that discomfort or angst or whatever. I will say just one thing on boundaries too with Maria. I know that I thought that was a great episode and to the same thought that I, I used to always think that I had to express the boundary to the other person, which always really brought a whole lot of anxiety to the forefront mm. And I'm learning now that I can absolutely have a boundary that I know that I don't really have to share that I can implement because it's for me also. So I wanted to give that feedback too. Yeah, that's, that's um, really uh, important to, to recognize. Thanks. Jerry commented on the, the website about the boundaries episode. Would you like to read that? Sure. Maria, I just wanted you to know, I don't find it strange to put a boundary on myself in parentheses, you'd ask the podcast if anyone thought that was strange. I had heard this boundary on self at a meeting long ago and found it so critically helpful when my beloved cat had died. I would go into these heaving sobs of grief, and I knew when I give into my emotions, I can easily go spiraling downward into a depression and then not have any energy or motivation to get up and get going again. So every time I felt another wave of grief coming, I'd make a deal with myself, aka set a boundary, to fully feel this grief for five minutes or ten minutes, and then I'd have to simmer it down and come back to where I am so I can continue to function. There's a reading in Hope for Today about emotional drunkenness, and I'm so glad I can set a boundary on my feelings. This way, I still get to feel but not get drunk on it. Thanks for listening. And that's that's a really brilliant idea. I like that too. I'm going to feel this thing, but maybe even set a timer or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, I can identify with that sort of just getting getting drunk on a feeling sometimes. Oh, absolutely. All right, and we got an email from Jennifer. She says, "Hi, Spencer. First of all, I want to thank you for all the hard work that you put into this podcast." A couple of years ago, when I was at the end of my rope due to my wife's drinking, I found the Recovery Show podcast, and it was just what I needed to put everything into perspective. 
The revelation that I did not cause it, could not control it, and could not cure it provided so much solace and relief for me. I have learned how to detach with love, although I had no idea what that looked or felt like until I put it into practice one day. My wife is a binge drinker, so there are periods of sobriety and periods of relapse that make life feel like riding on a roller coaster sometimes. We have been in couples therapy, which is making communication better, but she also grew up in an alcoholic family, so her coping skills in relationships are very dysfunctional, and this is a huge challenge for us. I did not grow up with alcoholism in my life, so it is very hard for me to understand how she reacts to things sometimes. I am learning and understanding more through our therapist and the recommended readings that she has provided. By the way, I highly recommend the book Adult Children of Alcoholics by Janet Wojtitz, I think that's right, to anyone who either grew up in an alcoholic household or anyone who loves someone who did. What an eye-opener. I love my wife very much, and she, like many, has a history of significant childhood trauma that led her to drinking and continues to affect her wanting to drink now. I hate the disease of alcoholism, and sometimes it is very hard to tell the difference between the person and the disease. However, I know that it is ultimately up to her to get a handle on this aspect of her life. All this leads me to a couple of topic suggestions. I thought it would be good to do a topic on adult children of alcoholics and explore how this can affect them long-term in their lives. The other topic I thought might be good is dry drunk syndrome. I find that my wife and her family members display these characteristics. They stop drinking, but they don't do the work to achieve recovery. Again, thank you so much for all you and your contributors do. Your efforts contribute to the healing and recovery for so many of us. Sincerely, Jennifer. And and thank you, Jennifer, for that uh, that honest uh, email. And, uh, you know, both expression of of some of the issues that, that you're struggling with and, you know, the ways in which you've found some relief. Uh, you have thoughts there, uh, Harriet? You know, I, I, too, you know, my qualifier is my spouse. And I started my recovery really by listening to this podcast and reading just like the writer. I, I sort of thought, you know, even then, I guess I was trying to control my own recovery too. But, you know, I sort of thought that meetings were for other people, you know, but that I could, that this was enough because I did feel better. And I would just encourage going to the meetings has added something for me. And, you know, I would just encourage you to try an Al-Anon meeting too, if you feel up to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the I like the topic suggestions. Uh, obviously, I did not grow up. Well, it's not obvious, but I did not grow up in an alcoholic family, and so um, I would have to find maybe a panel or at least a couple of people who did uh, to to really talk to that that topic. But it it I think it is a good topic, and uh, I should mm-hmm. try to put that together. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, dry drunk syndrome. I'm thinking I might like to suggest that to. Mark over at recoveredcast.com to uh, to talk about that maybe from the alcoholic point of view I think we might get uh, might get uh, an interesting set of insights from from having him and his guests talk about it from their own experience mm-hmm. so I, I'm going to suggest that to him Akila called back uh, to talk about the uh, judgment episode hey there's Akila I just finished listening to the judgment so, and I just wanted to call in and had a couple of comments. Um, the first one is that I totally get, oh, I know, that once I did this four step, that really helped me with the judgment. You talked about that because I got 
see how I did the things that I accused other people of doing and that I didn't like it in them or in myself. Um, and once that was really my breakthrough step, going through four. And then I was able to um, just be kind. And that meant help too, as you mentioned. The other thing I wanted to comment on was the motivation piece. So I don't live with active alcoholism. I didn't find a program until I had lived with it. And I um, I went because I was really obsessive and crazy, which fine because it really helped with that. So one of the things that motivates me to keep going um, is to just go. I, you guys mentioned keep coming back, which I think is important. But I think it's also the whole when I keep going to meetings, um, I, then I start to focus on and I start to think about how different my life is when I go to meetings versus when I don't. And for me, it was, it's been, it's always a huge difference. I, I can tell when I haven't been to a meeting or I need to get to one. And the example I would equate it with is going to the gym. I had to start going to the gym for medical reasons and exercising, which I didn't want to do, um, because but I went, and so eventually what would happen, what started happening is I was getting stronger, I was getting better, I could breathe better and all of those things. And then one day I just remember being like, wow, what a change my life has been. And now I make time to go to the gym. It's very important to my, my mental, physical, and emotional well-being, just like going to meetings is. So, but it took time for me to get there. And when I was going regularly, like once a week, then it could increase to twice a week. And then I would, well, you know, I could see the effects, I could feel the effects, and then it became more meaningful to me. So that's what I would say to someone who wants to be motivated. Thanks, Akila. And I'm reminded, uh, you know, she talks about, you know, just going going to a meeting and, and how her life is different. A friend of mine recently posted on Facebook I cannot possibly emphasize enough how life-changing and ultimately necessary it is for me to sit my ass on my cushion in front of my altar, light a candle, set my timer, and meditate every damn flipping morning. So, yeah. And that's that's sort of like, to me, is just another aspect of that same thing. When when I have a thing in my life that, that helps me uh, to live my life, you know, on a more even keel, which definitely meetings do, meditation does. Uh, it's important to keep doing it, uh, even maybe when I don't feel like it. And that's what I get from the every damn flippin' morning part of her post. <laughs> Your thoughts? I, I love the exercise analogy, too. I It reminds me that, you know, small changes make a big difference just over time. For me, anyway, like with that run I went on yesterday, I sort of had this idea of how far I wanted to run and, and looking at the two miles was like huge with the first step. But then I sort of broke it down to sort of like, just make it through one minute. (laughs) And I did, and then I could go to the next minute and so on and so forth. And I guess what she said sort of made me think to, to put my head down and to do the work and, and that the results will come, you know, part of the overall topic is forcing, forcing things and being able and willing to see, you know, the progress, but not forcing the progress to come before it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. And it doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. 
you can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Michelle and Alice did. And thank you again, Michelle and Alice, for your support. And the last song selection, I had to go with this. And I know some people are going to be like, ah, because <laughs> they've heard it too many times. Is the song Let It Go from the movie Frozen, uh, which you can, again, you can listen at therecoveryshow.com slash 105 if you haven't already been overloaded with it from the radio or your children or whatever. I mean, it is a good song about letting go, despite the fact that it's it's been way overplayed, perhaps. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them, too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.